Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan lists and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE, caps, no caps, it all works for the promo code. I just want to say on a personal level, I've known the Banzoogle team for a long time. They are great humans. They are always working super hard. And I run into them in non-pandemic times at conferences. I run into them in pandemic times at conferences. They're always networking. They're always connecting. And they're always on top of updating their platform for you to make sure they are integrating with everyone. I also personally love how they have their mailing list tools integrated as that is really the foundation of building a sustainable music career and a huge element of what we're going to talk about on today's podcast. So head over to bandzoogle.com and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE for 15% off the first year of any subscription. Hello, welcome to episode 11 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. Today is the first episode of three episodes that have basically the same title, except different guests and an evolving concept. So today's episode is setting up your release and distribution plan with Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond. So the next two episodes are also going to be setting up your release and distribution plan. Um, Today, we're talking about direct-to-fan and how that is so important and fundamentally how you build a sustainable music career. And then next week, we're going to be talking about DistroKid and TuneCore and CD Baby, which in the music industry are called aggregators, but in reality, um, they're essentially digital music distributors. And then the episode after that, I'll be talking to Symphonics GM, Nick Gordon, and they are a digital distributor, except they don't accept everyone. So I'm trying to kind of take you through the steps and stages of literally setting up your release and distribution plan which is chapter six in the book. Chapter six encompasses um, all three of these episodes. But in the meantime, before we get to interviewing Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond, I just wanted to cover a few things. Uh, No pun intended, because my first thing is about uh, song covers. I probably should have mentioned this in the business affairs episode. Um, This is where information on on covering songs goes, but it's, you know, either way, if you're going to release a cover, you need to take care of um, the business affairs on that before you distribute it. So it it technically works in this chapter too, uh, or chapter as well. So if you are doing a cover song, 
Um, you are going to want to head to Harry Fox's website so you can purchase what, what is called a mechanical license. Um, the current statutory rate for a mechanical license is, I believe, is 9.1 cents. So in iTunes and basically the you know digital download era and prior, you would have to pay 9.1 cent to the songwriters of the song you're covering every time um, you, you sell that song. Now you can purchase an estimated amount of streams from Harry Fox. And Harry Fox is most likely going to handle the mechanical royalties for um, the artists you are covering. But if not, look up who their music publisher is and reach out. Most music publishers have a portal on their site where you can purchase a mechanical, mechanical license um, that helps to es- helps you to estimate streams. Um, if I mean, literally, like what I just described is going to work like 98% of the time. But in the 2% of the time that uh, you are covering a song that Harry Fox does not issue mechanical licenses for and you cannot find a portal on um, the publisher site for the artists you are contacting, just reach out to them directly um, and see if you can purchase a mechanical license. I don't think you'll have to take it that far. But um, anyone can cover anything on the recording side. Just a quick reminder, there's two rights in music, um, the recorded music side and then uh, the songwriting or music publishing side. Um, Anyone can record a cover, but everyone has to pay mechanicals to songwriters on songs they cover. So get that taken care of um, before you release any sort of cover. Um, Okay, and one last thing before I dig in on Direct-A-Fan and its importance. Um, This podcast has been charting in 15 countries. It's charting in two more countries this week, Serbia and Saudi Arabia. So shout out to listeners there. And um, really thanks to all of you for listening, supporting. It's been awesome to hear from you on social media. Um, and keep it up because I don't know who you are <laughs> because podcasting is going to have its own direct-to-fan revolution at some point, but one step at a time and uh, you know, hopefully podcasting and, and other industries can learn from, um, from the music industry because we've really been at, at the forefront of direct-to-fan and, and direct-to-consumer. So let me explain what that is and, and why it's important. I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before. I say it all the time to students and in speaking engagements. The most valuable companies in the world are tech companies. Why? Because they have our data. And that is something that we, you know, data, user data is something that we just freely give up as musicians and music industry creators, Um, starting in the MySpace era, you know, iTunes era, you know, Spotify, like, there's no way to reach out to your fans on Spotify directly and say hello. And so what started to happen in 2008-ish um, is that the technology, you know, got to a point where artists could communicate with their fans, which was which was really, really exciting. And I think, you know, oh, and then the other, you know, well, I'll get to this, but the other cool component of Direct-A-Fan is not limiting yourself to, you know, streaming royalties or I'm dating myself, but uh, iTunes, you know, to 99 cents a song or 9.99 an album. And to exemplify that, um, I was I was managing the Dresden Dolls and Amanda Palmer 
in, I mean, I did for a while, but um, this was 2007. And this, this was an era technologically where friends of, you know, everyone was like instant messaging, you know, zip files of albums back and forth. And I was at a show with Amanda. I can't remember if it was Amanda or the Dresden Dolls, but it was at the Middle East in Boston. And I was sitting at the merch table and I saw someone come up to Amanda and offer her a check for like, or just give her a check for like $300 and say, I just want to support you. And I just want to support your art. And at the time, Amanda was recording her first solo album, which was produced by Ben Folds. And I remember thinking, and again, this was the iTunes era. So people were buying, you know, songs for 99 cents and albums for $9.99 on iTunes. And I just remember thinking like, why can't we post Amanda's album as a zip file since that's what I'm sending back and forth with friends and countless other people are doing the same. Why can't we just post a zip file and have it be a suggested donation you know, just like a museum. Like, why are we limiting fans to $9.99 for album or, or $0.99 cents, uh, per song? And so I wrote a kind of a business plan. And I was working at a management company in the, at the time. And I presented it to my two bosses. And one of them was like, this is great. Let's get on a call. Let's figure this out. I should preface this by saying, I knew the label would never let us do this. But it just made a lot of sense to me for a lot of reasons. And so Again, I was really fortunate to have um, a forward-thinking boss and mentor who was like, this is great. Let's get on a call. My other boss is like, this will never work. Go back to working on your artists. And I I started, I was working on it kind of in my spare time with some um, with some computer developer friends. And even, again, even though I knew the label it would never let us do it. And I remember <laughs> I was going to bed one night and dating myself further. I looked at my BlackBerry and Bob Lefsetz, who many of you know is like an industry blogger, sent out an email that said, you know, to, to his list, not to me, um, that said, click this, which probably no one would do now. That just sounds like, uh, you know, spam or uh, some sort of bad situation. But um, it was Radiohead's In Rainbows album. And for those of you that don't know or were too young or whatever, um, Radiohead just put out an album in whenever this was, 2007, 2008 or whatever. And it was it was the exact same concept. It was pay what you want. It was suggested donation. And that was, you know, transformational. That was the biggest story in the music industry. And I went into work the next day and my naysaying boss, who I do love, um, you know, his favorite, one of his, I won't say his favorite band is Radiohead, but whatever. He would sing a lot of Radiohead in the office. He was like, Radiohead stole your idea. So that like that was his way of kind of validating like, oh, wow, maybe that was a pretty good idea. And I'm sure there were other people that thought of it besides Radiohead. I think there was like a jazz guy that was doing it, you know. So, um, you know, when there's, a, when there's a good and practical idea, it's not usually one person that has it. And um, yeah, so Radiohead really cracked open the direct-to-fan revolution. Again, like, why are we limiting fans to you know, 99 cents or streaming royalties or whatever. And then also the power of data. And there was a huge movement and, you know, dare I say revolution kind of around that time that lasted a few years and is still going on today as far as, uh, you know, basically direct-to-fan presentations, right? Like remember Topspin uh, for those that 
<laughs> remember. Topspin was a, was one of the first direct to fan companies, and they would go around and um, you know present to artists and managers, being like, "You can know which fan pays the most. You can know where your fans are." Right. So um, it was really sharing the power of data. And then again, I'm, I keep saying it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. But just not limiting yourself to finite price points. I was fortunate to be on the board of Cash Music, who developed um, free open source direct-to-fan tools for artists. They are referenced in the book, and unfortunately, they no longer exist. So there is a link um, in the book where I'm going to post updates because I figured things like that would happen. Um, Unfortunately, there are some issues with my publisher, which I won't get into, but uh, I really just want this URL back. Um, But... I'm kind of alluding to that because that's the whole that's kind of the whole point in this episode, right? Like I didn't even listen to my own own advice. It's like, oh, I'm close with my publisher. Like I'll use their URL to post updates and you know, he's been going through a hard time and I just haven't heard back from him and um and now I have a dead link in my book, right? So that's a long-winded story to say your website is the ultimate direct-to-fan. It's the ultimate direct-to-consumer. That's where you're going to get an A-plus from me. Um, You should be selling all your music digitally on your website. Um, I really like Squarespace for websites. I sell books, you know, through our Squarespace website. I can't code. I can figure out a Squarespace website. Um, It's great if you can have a donation option, you know, so you're not limiting yourself, like I said, to, to finite um, prices on your website. And again, you know who those fans are and like, not to be a creep, but like, you know, a lot of you have kindly bought the book that this podcast is based on from my company's website. And like, I know who you are and you totally fascinate me, right? There's professors, there's professors, there's major managers, there's artists from all over the world. So I promise I'm not too creepy, but it's so fascinating to see, you know, what types of people are checking out this information and, and hopefully that they're finding it useful. As opposed to this podcast that has thousands of listeners, and again, I have no idea who you are, and almost every day a friend or a colleague was like, oh, I, li- you know, I checked out this podcast episode, and, and I get really excited when, when I hear that, but, but I'm always surprised, right? Because I have no idea who they are because Spotify and Apple Music, just like um, – just like for musicians, owns all that data, right? And and data is is absolutely power. So um, the A plus version for me for direct to fan is to be selling all of your music digitally on your site um, for a, uh, and then also have a donation option if people want to pay more than that. But one thing I also talk about in the book is uh, monetizing your music from from day one. So you can do this in a few ways. If you have a set vision for your release, launch a pre-order as soon as you begin recording. I probably should have talked about that during the recording chapter, but I know I do in the book. Um, So 
you know, when you're launching a pre-order or a fundraiser or whatever you want to call it, um, I, I like pre-order. If you have a set vision, you want to have a price point for everyone. You know, maybe everybody gets the, al- you know, say it's an album. Maybe everybody gets the album digitally for five bucks. Maybe they get a CD for 10, vinyl for 20 or 25. And then you want to make the tiers more enticing as they go. Um, I remember, again, kind of in this direct-to-fan era, Arcade Fire came out with a release and I was like totally fine to buy the $10 digital or whatever. And then suddenly I'm spending $100 on a really compelling package because each tier got more attractive. So you want to monetize your music from day one as far as that goes. If you don't have a clear vision for your release, if you're just you know hitting the home studio and figuring it out, launch a Patreon and that way you can keep fans engaged and bring them along as a part of your journey as you begin recording. So start monetizing from day one. That's what I did with this, uh, this, again, the book that this podcast is based on, which is my second book. Um, I, I launched a pre-order when I was halfway done writing it because I knew I would finish it. And I ended up recouping, um, the expenses on the book before release. So I think recouping before before release is a really great mindset and model to be in that I'd love people um, thinking about more and kind of having that mentality if, if possible. Don't just wait until the release is out and be like, okay, it's on Spotify, like go collect pennies. Um, you know, start. I, I've been I've been monetizing this project for three years, which. <laughs> I feel weird saying because I didn't like write a three-year plan for this entire project, but I was shocked when, you know, it came up on Facebook that I was talking, I was um, presenting on how to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams two years ago. So I did basically a year of pre-orders in 2019. And anytime someone would ask me to speak, I would just present on the topics and people could pre-order the book. I spent all of 2020 releasing the book as well as producing the largest digital webcast in history, which is on my mind. It's called I Voted. Uh, It's on my mind because I've been doing a lot of fundraising for that lately. And then I launched this podcast uh, in 2021. So that's three years of of one project, and I'm just amazed that it keeps going. So again, don't just wait until your baby is out. Start monetizing your release um, from day one. And you know, doing that through direct-to-fan, direct-to-consumer, through your website is ideal. Now, if if doing any sort of commerce through your Squarespace website uh, or whatever site you're using, but I like Squarespace just because you can easily update it, um, or people who can't code like me can can fairly easy, easily update it. But if if you're like, oh my gosh, this is torture, it's, you know, Squarespace is not intuitive to me, you can, well, you need to be on Bandcamp as well, which I'll talk about in a second, but you can embed your releases from Bandcamp onto your site. So that um, that technology, as far as selling your music directly and getting that data will be taken care of for you. However, Bandcamp takes a commission. It's, it's a fairly reasonable commission of, I believe, 15%. But um, so that's why selling music directly through your website is the best way to support you financially as far as the highest profit margin goes, and collecting data for your long-term and sustainable use. I cannot stress that enough. That's how you connect directly with your audience is 
through email addresses, through text messages, because again, all these platforms just continually, you know, continually, constantly change. Um, if you built your career on MySpace, you know, again, you don't own that page. Um, a lot of people just lost master recordings that were all hung up on, in MySpace, or maybe I saw they got them back, but you get the idea. You know, I, I used to say for years, like, I know it's hard to believe that like Facebook might, you know, may no longer exist. And now it's like, well, a lot of people don't like Facebook and maybe it'll be regulated or broken up or whatever. So the things that seem really um, ingrained right now are, are just going to shift and evolve. That's just the reality when it comes to technology as, as well as the music industry. So so again, ideally you want to launch your pre-order from your website probably a few episodes and chapters ago. I apologize for that. And then uh, you also want to be on Bandcamp. And I've been really obsessed with Bandcamp um, literally from day one. As you hear, it's, it's another platform. Not that there's that many that I've been an, an evangelist for, but another platform that I've just been a totally authentic, organic, unpaid um, evangelist for because I really believe in what they're doing. Um, they genuinely empower artists by, again, not limiting price points to, you know, fractions of a cent for streaming, uh, as well as, um, again, limiting it to 99 cents or whatever in in the iTunes era, you know, per song. And they give, and, you know, that's awesome. And then, but possibly more valuable and more important is that they give you the data of your fans, if the fan opts in, so there's no like privacy privacy issue there, which is what the tech companies will say. Oh, they're protecting their user privacy. It's like, give me a break. What fan doesn't want to like hear directly from their private art or from their favorite artists, and they can opt out from there. And again, the power of that is all these things are going to change, right? Like maybe you're signed to a label, maybe you're with a manager, maybe everything's amazing, but what happens if that label falls apart? God forbid your manager dies. You know, like anything could happen and all you have is your great art and your audience. That's the whole point of promo and all this other stuff we're going to get into in the future. Like I think that promo can kind of be a jumbled mess in the modern era because back in the day, you know, you could be in like Spin Magazine and you're going to sell CDs. You're going to sell music. Now, that's not necessarily the case in a world of infinite media, right? So um, anyway, anyway, my point is on that, which we'll get more into in future episodes, is the whole point of promo promotion was to get fans. And now you can get fans directly, which again, we'll talk about in future episodes, but you can communicate with them directly. And so what that means is no matter what's going on, you know, with your team or technology or whatever, like... I've told this story a million times. Um, when I was, I, I first, I started working with the Dresden Dolls as an intern when I was in college. And this was 2002 or something, way before people were talking about email lists, direct to fan, blah, blah, blah. And Amanda had an email list, basically. Amanda Palmer of the Dresden Dolls had an email list for the band. Um, I don't think we even had like email list software or anything at the time. It's probably just like a BCC thing. And that's how she would communicate with her audience about, you know, upcoming shows, releases, all that stuff. And Amanda said to me once, um, this is said with so much love. I've said it a million times, so I, I really hope it's not a negative thing, but I, I, I don't think she would have a problem with this. Um, you know, the, it was so brilliant that Amanda had that email list, but it also came out of paranoia. 
because she said to me at one point, this was early days in the band, but they may have had it. They had a few team members in place. And she's like, well, what if you go away? What if my fancy booking agent goes away? What if my attorney goes away? This is all I have to share my art with my audience is this email list. So I really hope you understand the power of Direct-A-Fan. Amanda went on to raise the most money ever for a musician on Kickstarter, over a million dollars. And she did so because um, the Dresden Dolls, well, she makes great art and she has an amazing connection with her audience. But fundamentally, um, she and Brian Biglione of the Dresden Dolls worked, and myself, worked our butts off to collect as many email addresses as possible over the years with that band. I think they have like a 100,000 person email list. And actually back to the uh, you know, Radiohead, Amanda, the name your own price business plan I was, I was making. Um, I mean, Radiohead beat us to it. Again, the label would never let us do it. And I remember when that album, when Amanda's solo album came out, uh, it sold 10,000 copies in the first week, 9,000 were through Amanda and the Dresden Dolls email list and a thousand were by the label who had one job. Um, also, we'd built in some pretty high, you know, some pretty enticing bundles in, in that release uh, through Amanda's email list and website. And we easily cleared six figures and Amanda was able to keep the va- vast majority of it. And then the label kept their share of, you know, what they sold because we were able to sell directly and keep all that, which is amazing. So that's the power of Direct-A-Fan. You should be doing it through your website. You should also be doing it through Bandcamp. Ideally, you start by pushing out the website, maybe a week later, then then you share, you know, Bandcamp. And that's ultimately what I want to cover today. You know, like pre-order, website, Bandcamp. This is where you make the vast majority of your money uh, on recording or or where you can, where you can really go wild here. And then... uh, in the next episode, like I said, we're going to talk about distributing your music to Spotify, Apple, all that good stuff. But it's a step-by-step process for a reason, so it helps you. And I, you know, I hope that covers it with Direct-A-Fan. You know, definitely hit me up. I'm at mwizzle on Twitter. Um, this is something I'm extremely passionate about. Passionate about as far as sustainability for not just artists, but all talent for, for the long term. I had a major athlete's uh, family member reach out to me this week um, asking about direct-to-fan, direct-to-consumer, you know, for his family member. And yeah, so, you know, direct-to-consumer is, you know, quote, commerce. I know it's kind of a dirty word, like in our world, um, is something that they're definitely talking about, you know, in, in all industries. And it's something that music has been at, at the forefront. Uh, and I will give my publisher credit for this. Uh, George Howard, love you. Um, mu- you know, he's always said that music is the canary in the coal mine for other fields. And I feel that, you know, and and that's, you know, definitely the case with Direct-to-Fan. You know, music went first. Uh, and I, I think that's because our file formats are smaller. Like, it's much easier to share an MP3 with someone than it is a television show file or a film or whatever. So we've really broken the mold for better or for worse. Um, You know, before Netflix came along, like I said, you know, streaming and TV shows and and films and all that. So hopefully the podcast industry can learn from that. I think that's going to be a reckoning uh, at, at, at some point. That's for sure. And yeah, no matter what you're doing, there's, there's so, you know, that's the power of the internet. That's what was so exciting 
when kind of the consumer internet came out to, you know, that was exciting to countless people, but to people like me, Jesse Von Doom, Amanda Palmer, you know, it was just like, oh my gosh, we can go direct. We're not just beholden to, you know, massive tech corporations. Those things exist and there's ways to utilize and and, and monetize the, the massive tech corporations, but um, this is where it's at for the long term. So again, I hope that gives you a good foundation of direct to fan. And now I am going to uh, hand it over to myself, where I interview Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond. So I hope you enjoy it. And tune in next week, where we're going to be talking about the same topic, uh, setting up your relation, uh, f- setting up your release and distribution plan. And we're going to be talking about uh, DistroKid, TuneCore, CD Baby, and the differences between those. So thank you so much for listening. Spread the word. Let me know if you have questions or anything. And in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Ethan. Welcome to How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. Today, I'm so thrilled to have Bandcamp founder Ethan Diamond for episode 11, setting up your release and distribution plan. Welcome, Ethan. Hi, thank you. Um, So I initially connected with you in 2008, and it was kind of a weird story on my end. I had just started my first company. I was managing and consulting on artists, and we were definitely looking for whether we realized it was called this or not, like a direct-to-fan solution. Um, you know, maybe I'm sure that I'm sure there were technical people that existed that could help us do this on artists' websites. But I was talking to, I was managing Amanda Palmer at the time, and I was talking to someone at her label, and he had suggested a website that sounded really interesting, and I couldn't remember what it was called. So I started, I just started Googling, and I found you guys, and I thought that's what Harlan from the label had mentioned. It turned out it was something totally different, and I reached out to you. Um, so tell us about the origins of Bandcamp. Why did you, why did you found it? Sure. Well, uh, let's see, it was, it was 2007 and there was an artist, uh, that I really loved who had decided that they were going to, uh, put out their next record on their own. And they, uh, they did that. And, uh, I went to their website on the, uh, day the record came out and, the uh, the site didn't even load, so I just thought mm, they're probably you know they're probably overwhelmed with traffic. That happens a lot. Uh, I'll just I'll check back the next day, and I did that, um, and it loaded really slowly, uh, but it, it it eventually got there. And you know this was at the time where uh, the trend in websites was everything was flash based, and you kind of had to poke around a little bit to uh, to figure out like w- what exactly the interface did. It was um, you know, where the players were and things like that, how to just, how to just listen to the music. And so, you know, I, I listened to a snippet of the record, uh, paid for it and then nothing happened. You know, I didn't get, uh, didn't get the record. And so I, uh, I wrote to, there was a, there are a few different like help links on the site and I wrote to one of those saying, Hey, you know, I, I, I paid for this record, didn't get it. I got a message back, I think it was from the lead singer, and it was just uh, a link to an open zip file. And, um, you know, the, the obviously, you know, could, could have shared around. I didn't do that, of course. But, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I, I opened it up and all of the tracks on this record, uh, or sorry, all of the, the files inside the zip file were, um, 
they had names like master three dot mp3 and they were you know like low quality mp3s no context around it at all and um and so you know i i didn't i basically every sort of technical hurdle that uh you could run into um getting this record i i hid and i knew that as a result of that i think you know few very few people probably ended up uh hearing this record which just you know it killed me for two reasons the one was that I just really love the band. I thought they deserved, you know, all the success in the world. And, you know, when you love a band, right, you want everybody else to hear it too and, and have that uh, similar reaction to you. So that, that, that was, uh, you know, just made me, made, made me sad. And, oh. and the, the, other, uh, the other part of it was that I just really admired what the band was trying to do because, you know, obviously the, the internet makes it possible uh, to go, uh, you know, directly to your fans with your music and, and have that sort of direct, simple, direct interaction with your fans that, and, you know, I, I admired that. I wanted that to be possible and felt like this, they, they shouldn't be running into technical hurdles like this. You know, somebody should do something to help not only, you know, this band, but any band really who wants to do it this way. And, um, and again, you know, this was, 2007, 2008, where the options uh, just didn't exist for something like that. They, there was MySpace, and they had um, there was a, a, a plugin at the time called Snowcap that let you um, sell your music. But it was pretty, it was pretty uh, difficult to use. And you know, MySpace obviously was really somebody else's site. It was somebody. It was the MySpace identity and had a bunch of advertising on it and all that. And it was just, um, it was really weird to me that. Uh, that at that time, if you were a writer, you had WordPress and Blogger and Movable Type and all these things that kind of let you set up uh, a, a site very quickly and easily for free. And then, you know, the branding of Movable Type or Blogger or whatever was just a, a little blurb in the footer. So it was really, you know, you, it was possible to create your own identity like that. But if, you know, your artistic output was music instead of words, you didn't have an option like that. So so that was really the basic idea was like, let's create this um, essentially a white label service for artists that would let you sell your music uh, directly to your fans. And, uh, and if anything, you know, we were, we wanted to be as far in the background as possible, you know, and let, let somebody have their own URL and, and, uh, and just say, you know, powered by Bandcamp at the bottom. So, you know, that's what we did. And um at first people thought, I think we were pretty crazy because the conventional wisdom at that point was, uh, that music, uh, sales were dead, um, that, uh, you know, piracy, uh, had eliminated that. And, um, and my, my feeling was that if you just gave people, uh, an obvious way to directly support, you know, a musician they love that they would take you up on that. So, um, the the sort of the the most exciting proof of that we got in the early days was that we were looking at uh for every sale that was coming through we were looking to see you know how the person got to bandcamp and a lot of the search terms that were coming in were for things like the name of an album or the name of a track uh plus the word like limewire or hulkshare right. or torrent right so people who like were setting out at the beginning maybe not to pirate music but just to get it in the easiest way possible. And that's, was their mindset, but they ended up on Bandcamp, saw, you know, that they could get this directly from the artist and then did that. 
And that was, you know, that was extremely exciting because it, it really just validated a bunch of the assumptions that we were going in with. And, you know, from that point forward, it just, it uh, grew and grew. I love it. Um, who was that first artist that really sparked? Oh, you know, but I don't want to call them out, but okay. you know, because it's kind of the point of this is, is that, you know, yeah, it was this one artist for me, but at the time it was, you know, thousands of art, like, or tens of thousands of artists. It was any artist really who yeah. wanted to go this route was running into that problem where they were just spending, you know, lots of money and lots of time and ending up with something that didn't, you know, necessarily work. And like that, it just, it made no sense. Do they know that they inspired Bandcamp? No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I, I still see that band to this day every once in a while, but I don't know that they, uh, I haven't mentioned it because I'm still starstruck when I, even though it's, you know, a small independent band, I'm like, you know, I'm a total fan. So I never have said anything to them. I love it. But because like you said, it wasn't their fault and they were doing things right. They were trying. They just didn't have the tools and the technology to do it. Totally. Yep. That's right. Um, are you, you're a musician, right? Oh, no, I wouldn't say so. I grew up playing music. I, I, okay. um, I play saxophone in jazz band and then uh, like horn sections and funk bands and stuff through college, but I haven't, uh, I haven't played in a while. I'm, I'm uh, much more of a music fan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, these days. Cool. So you kind of talked about this, but like, you know, when you, when you realized there was that problem and then you realized you could solve it, like what was your vision for Bandcamp when you began? Was it just like, I just want to help artists I love? I mean, obviously it's, it's so huge now. So what was that vision in, you know, 2008, even 2009? Well, the earliest vision I'd say was just to help artists be successful and, you know, help them um, go directly to their fans and create that relationship because I, I feel like it's a mutually beneficial one. Like I, as a fan, get to participate in the creation of more of the art that I love. And that, you know, that feels good. That makes me feel more connected to the music. And then obviously from the artist's perspective, it allows uh, the artist to continue making music, right? And, and uh, that, I would say that was really the extent of it. It was really uh, just to kind of sit back and, um, and empower uh, a bunch of artists in this way. And um, we didn't, or, or I, you know, I, at least in the earliest days, I didn't have this idea that Bandcamp would end up being um, a community that, uh, that drives a lot of the sales. Um, so that was one of the earliest sort of changes that happened, but it took years, you know, the, the company has been around for 12 years now. And I, I don't think it was until like year three or four that people, you know, when people would ask me, um, Hey, you know, uh, what are some other, uh, math rock artists on this platform? <laughs> and I would, I, my first reaction was, I don't, you know, why are you asking? I don't, why do you care? <laughs> you know, yeah. use Google. Right, totally. <laughs> rock into Google, and um, and then I, you know I started as, as enough artists got on the platform, and and there was sort of this, this critical mass was hit. 
it started to make sense that that somebody would ask that question because they were really asking about you know the the idea that um, that they want to find other artists to directly support in this way, um, others in this scene, and uh, you know artists. Um, really recommending other artists became something that we realized we could do, you know, and I, it sounds ridiculous. I know, but I, I, at the time that my point of comparison was MySpace and the community on MySpace um, had really over time uh, devolved into something that I, I thought of as a distraction, you know, it, it, on people's pages, people were writing like, thanks for the ad and then posting each other's flyers constantly and kind of spamming each other's pages and I thought, oh, you know, let's just create no community whatsoever on yeah. this. Right? Let's have it just be about the artist. Um, but then, you know, once we did hit that that number, I don't know what it was, but once there were at some point there were enough artists where it was like, yeah, you know what? Having the ability to recommend other artists could be really powerful, or having the ability to search through here um, could be really interesting. And you know, part of the inspiration uh, for that was. Um, uh, Fader magazine has a, a um, they had a, a section at the front where, it, where an artist, they would pick an artist and then ask that artist to name like three records that, um, you know, changed their life or were most influential to them. And I realized, you know, we could make like a little digital version of this, right. Where any artist on Bandcamp after you purchase their music could tell you about, you know, three other artists on the site that they think you should go check out. And so we implemented that and that started to do, you know, we saw the, the power of that people, um, people were using that. And, uh, and then we just expanded that over time. So now there's, you know, a footer at the bottom of pages where um, those recommendations appear and, um, and, you know, you can explore other fans collections of the music they've bought. And, you know, that, that again was something where, um, you know, the reference points I had, uh, you know, at the time were things like social networks telling you what other people you followed were listening to. And, you know, because they were frictionless, it was, I thought, meaningless. But because what we were doing was, you know, creating, uh, creating friction that in, in terms of like a purchase of music, you know, that the fact that the person spent money um, to buy that music made that collection much more meaningful. So seeing what other people bought, we thought, hey, that may be a really interesting way to discover new music. So we implemented that. And again, you know, saw just a ton of people using it and driving a lot of sales for artists and, you know, slowly just Bandcamp evolved into being uh, that community that it is now where, um, you know, that instead of, you know, just being a bunch of individual uh, artist sort of sites or islands. It's this community that that uh, creates a lot of the sales for those artists. Amazing. Um, how did artists get involved with Bandcamp in the early days? Were you proactively reaching out? Was it random people like me, like Googling by accident? How did you get artists on the platform initially? Yeah, um, well, we've never done any marketing of the site. Um, in the early days, uh, Andy uh, Bayo from the XOXO Festival, who um, had a site called Upcoming um, in around the time Bandcamp started, which was uh, for upcoming events. Um, he's somebody that uh, I connected with um, in those days, and uh, and he wrote an article about Bandcamp when we launched. And um, his followers, you know, I would say are uh, a lot of the 
you know, sort of internet culture, um, internet musicians. So in those earliest days, I think like after that article was published, you know, a lot of people who made video game music came to the site. A lot of people from like, um, you know, like, uh, there was a choose your own adventure, uh, um, uh, online. I don't even know how to describe it, but it was basically, um, a choose your own adventure that had a music soundtrack. Cool. And then there was like, there was like the, the furry community <laughs> and the people that they love. So it was all, all of these sort of, um, outsider communities that were really interesting, found it at first. Um, but, but also, you know, we, I approached friends of mine um, in San Francisco uh, who, you know, San Francisco in 2008, still there were a lot of, a lot of musicians still uh, here. Um, And, uh, and they, you know, people, it would just spread by word of mouth almost exclusively. Um, And, you know, that had its advantages and disadvantages. I mean, I loved the, uh, the sort of the, the, the purity, I guess, of that, you know, there wasn't, wasn't anybody that we recruited really to the site, um, but by, by starting from this, um, from this point of the platform is going to be completely open, um, that was beautiful in some way, but it also, it, you know, it created a hurdle, uh, from the earliest days where, you know, if you were, a, I think a bigger artist, there was a perception that, you know, Bandcamp was maybe just for amateurs and, you know, we have just, I think, fought to overcome that uh over time and i think now we have but it was definitely a challenge early on but to me that was like that was the kind of the point of bandcamp is that it would could be open to absolutely everybody it should be as direct as possible you can just go set up your site put upload your music you don't have to wait for you know a distributor to get it there and somebody pays you and you get the money immediately right it's as as transparent uh as can be and um but but again, like that that created some, I think, head scratching moments for other artists where it was like, do I really want my music to be up there? You know, where I'm next to like, you know, the music of an 11 year old who just, you know, is uploading their first music from their parents' basement or whatever. It's just and um, I, I now the answer is, you know, it doesn't matter. Right? I think it's supposed it can be anything. Right. So I, I like that about it. And like that, that's the case with distributing music anywhere. An 11 year old can distribute to Spotify. And um, I've, you know, I've been fighting that fight for you guys for a long time because it's, it's really confused me, especially when we have artists on labels. And, you know, I ask, um, you know, if, if we can have the album on Bandcamp and the answer is no, or, you know, so how much money has been paid out roughly to rights holders and artists since you guys began? Uh, it's now, uh, just shy of 700 million. Yeah. So <laughs> then I make that point to labels whose job legally is to promote and exploit in the legal sense, the master and collect as much money as possible. And now they're finally paying attention. Um, but obviously the other component is, you know, the data that you give to artists and rights holders, which I would say is as valuable as that 700 million, if not more. Um, mm-hmm. But be- before we get into that, you know, you talked about word of mouth being key to growth, but, um, you know, what were other tipping points or, or key turning points uh, that stand out to you as far as growth goes in, the, in those early days? Sure. Well, um, I'll, I, 
there are two. Uh, well, actually three I want to tell you about. So the first one was when we added uh, physical goods uh, to the site. So at first, um, Bandcamp was just about selling digital music uh, to um, to fans. And, um, and after a couple of years, we allowed you to attach uh, a physical album to a digital purchase so you could get, you know, a vinyl record or CD and immediately have the, uh, the digital in your collection. And then we um, enabled just adding standalone merchandise. And, you know, we, our, our model, by the way, is, is, um, is essentially the Etsy model. We're a marketplace, right? So we don't manufacture or, um, or fulfill the merchandise, but we're a marketplace for it, right? But we, once we created the ability to add physical goods as, you know, their standalone thing, like, you know, here's my t-shirt, here's my uh, vinyl record, or as part of the album, um, you know, that was an, sort of an immediate bump uh, that I think increased the business something like 40% uh, wow. immediately. And um, the next one uh, was uh, adding the ability to, uh, for a label to sign up and have, you know, artists uh, uh, point to different artist sites and um, all the things that we needed to do around that, like allowing, you uh, an artist to have some records where the payments go to them and then other records where the payments go to the label and showing unified stats for those uh, artists. So we, we didn't really start off with the idea that, you know, labels are bad or anything like that. It's just, we were four people at the beginning oh, and right. we, didn't, we couldn't implement everything that we wanted to, to do. So the, so I think that that caused some people to wonder like, well, is Bandcamp, you know, just for artists only? Um, but now, you know, there's, there are 9,000 independent labels on the site and they generate, you know, a, a really significant uh, percentage of the, of the business overall. Um, so that was another moment where, um, where things, uh, kind of, kind of changed. And then the other one was about six years ago, um, or, uh, five years ago when we, um, launched, uh, our editorial publication, the Bandcamp Daily. And, um, and that's just been enormous for us. You know, we have just uh, an incredibly talented group of editors and writers whose mission essentially is to go find, you know, all the incredible from this incredible sort of uh, uh, variety of music that's on the on the site. Go find the stuff um, that they want to highlight and call people's attention to. And um, and that again was something that uh, not only I think made the site a whole lot more interesting but also um, motivated a lot of um, a lot of labels and artists who might be sort of constantly thinking about, you know, the next album and the PR cycle for that to actually get involved with Bandcamp. And, um, and so that's been just really effective too. Awesome. So at your core, you know, I, I still, you know, I meet students all the time. I meet young musicians, I meet older musicians um, who don't know about Bandcamp and, and I'm constantly preaching the importance. So at, at a basic core level, why should artists and really any rights holder, you know, will include labels in this as well, work with Bandcamp? Sure. I mean, because uh, there's a really large audience of music buyers and passionate music consumers on Bandcamp now. You know, there are millions of fans who every month uh, now it's about $21 million that is being spent. There's about 70,000 records sold a day on the site. And, uh, you know, you can upload your music and be a part of that uh, in a matter of, you know, minutes. So uh, why wouldn't you? 
Exactly. And why is it important to you to share fan slash customer data with art artists and rights holders as well as not limit price points? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, because I view the data as, as belonging to uh, the artist or label, it's, it's not, it's not ours. I mean, it's ours in the sense that like, it's the labels and artists and band camps to use in a, as effectively as possible to sell more music and help those artists and labels more. So I, I feel like, you know, we use it to, we use the data to, um, to bring the artist and label more fans and the label and artist should be able to do that too. So I, you know, it's, I don't think it really ever occurred to me that it wasn't the the artist and labels data. It's like, it, of course it is. It should, of course it should be. But I think the sensitivity around that for others is, you know, about, you know, wanting really starting with this sort of fan first mentality, wanting to protect all of the data of the fan and respect that. And we respect that too. I would, everything that we do is opt in through the, through the fan. But if a fan wants to share their, you know, their email address with a band because they love that band and want to know when the band is selling something new or coming to their town to do a show or something like that. Of course you should let them do that. Right. So I, I just feel like, um, starting with that, like artist first mentality that we've always had, um, is, is, uh, kind of what led to that. And, yeah. and anyway, you know, I, I didn't cover this earlier, but you know, I, at, at our core, you know, we are, um, and this is another reason to, you know, to answer, answer your question about you know, why you should have your music album on the site. Um, you know, above everything else, we're an artist first platform. You know, the whole business is structured in such a way that we prioritize the interests of the artists above anything. So, you know, we, the way Bandcamp works is it's, you know, it's not a subscription fee. It's not advertising. It's, uh, it's that we, um, it's a revenue share based model. So when a, when a sale happens, um, you know, bank, there's a pros, credit card processing fee, and then there's a Bandcamp fee, which, um, you know, averages out to about uh, 11%. It's 10% on physical goods, and then 15% on digital, and it drops to 10% uh, after you've made uh, $5,000 in a year. So um, the average on across the whole site, the average that ends up going to the artist on any given transaction is about 82%. So, you know, Bandcamp only makes money when uh when the artists and labels on the site make a bunch more money right so that that has kind of always been uh that alignment of interests has always been core to what we're about and and i think is yet another reason why you know why wouldn't you have have your music here absolutely and um you know protecting fans data that's kind of a cop-out because you explain it perfectly it's like you're giving the fan the choice to opt in and i'm going to guess that the, I mean, I, I want to share my data with my favorite artists. I want to hear from them directly. So that is so powerful and something I'm constantly educating people on. Um, it's just really, really important and powerful. And along those same lines, um, why is it important to you to not limit price points? Well, because I think that, uh, that the artist knows their audience a lot better than, than we, we, could you know like uh mm -hmm. there was an artist in the early days who i remember was selling their digital album for 13 euros or 18 no it was 18 euros and i would have never you know i don't know who their audience is or why that's the right price for them sure. but they did really really well at that you know and um and it just always seemed to me like i you know this idea that it should be this number not that number i i don't I think that the artist or label um, probably knows that better than we can. And 
We, what we can do, though, is look across the entire site at the pricing that seems to be most effective. And we, can make, and, we, and we make that a suggestion. You know, we just say, hey, this is what seems to work best across the site. You know, use this information as you will. But, you know, it, it, but again, it's completely up to you. Um, and again, that's just, I think, from the mentality of like, it's, it's not about us. It's a, it should be about the artist and, um, and what they want to do. The, the exception to that, I would say, is just that it's been really important to us from the early days to allow um, fans to pay more if they want to. Yes. So you, on, on the site, you know, you can set a minimum price, you can set a floor for things, but we really encourage you to let fans pay more if they want, which people do uh, a whole lot of the time. And, you know, it's just a way for a fan to uh, express, express gratitude and end up having that connection with the artist that happens when, when they do that. So every day we see some, you know, examples of people paying like, hundred dollars for a one dollar track mm-hmm. because the music you know meant that much to them or you know a hundred dollars for an album that was listed for seven or eight dollars so i just think you know why wouldn't you enable that kind of magic to happen it's great when it happens and so we we all have always wanted to uh to enable it absolutely and i've never understood why would we limit fans to like you know when you started it was the itunes era so i would say like why would you limit fans to 99 cents or 9.99 for an album and now you know with streaming why would you limit it to that i had an artist who put up um some tracks on bandcamp and included um a drawing of a rhino for a thousand dollars and someone bought it and i'm sure you have i'm sure you have many examples of that but if someone wants right. to give you 100 dollars or 1000 dollars why would along with their data so we right. you know so the artists can continue to communicate about music and shows and all that why would we stop them so for sure love that um, i have an audience question from an artist named kala does being private do, you know does bandcamp being a private company allow you to have better relationships with artists well, I think, you know, the main benefit of being private uh, is that it's allowed us to um, to really control the direction of the company and continue right. to prioritize uh, the interest of the artist over, um, you know, say, a sh- a, you know, shareholders. Um, and I think there are com- examples of companies that actually manage to balance this really well. Etsy is one. It's a public company, I think, and really prioritizes the community. But, um, you know, I... I haven't run a public company, so I haven't haven't had that experience of how you end up balancing that. But you know, it's not only staying private that's that's helped us in that way. It's that we're we're a profitable business. We focus really mm-hmm. early on on getting to profitability and um, and not uh, raising a ton of money. We we raised money in the, in the early days in two thousand seven two thousand eight. We um, raised a small amount of money, but but got to um, profitability in two thousand twelve and just have stayed there ever since. And that's just um, that's allowed us to to really um, control the direction of the business and stay true to our mission. And uh, and I that's yeah, that's meant a lot to me. I love that. Very cool. Did you ever imagine Bandcamp would be in the place that it is today? You know, I don't know. I can't say I really thought a ton about, you know, about it. I, every, every kind of moment of Bandcamp's existence has been like, Ooh, what's this, you know, what's this next cool thing that we can do to help artists and what, um, what are we going to do to keep, you know, growing, growing the site and, uh, being better, better service. And so the focus has, for me has always been, you know, on how to build this and what it should do. And, um, and 
along the way, I guess my assumption was, yeah, if this, you know, as soon as we saw it being useful for some, for, a, you know, a hundred people in the earliest days, it seems like, oh, we can make this, you know, useful for a lot more people than that. So let's, let's keep evolving it and keep, keep growing it and, and, uh, having more and more impact. And, um, and yeah, I mean, along the way, at some point, it just, it got to where it is today. And I, but I can't say like, there was ever a moment where he said, okay, our mission here is to, you know, uh, be used by this many artists or right. have this many fans. It's, um, it, but I mean, it, I mean, it's incredibly gratifying, obviously that it is at this point and, um, and continues to, to grow. I feel like I, I still, you know, it's, it's the big, the site launched 12 years ago, but it's really been 13 years that we've been working on it. And I still am really excited to work on it every day. I'm having a really good time. And, um, and there's still like just a ridiculously long list of things we want to do to improve it, to help, um, artists succeed at a, at a bigger and bigger scale. And, and so there's just, it feels like there's no, no, no end in sight to that, but, um, yeah. I love that. And I, you know, I feel it's because you've clearly really stayed true to your mission you know, and, and not gotten too off base there. It's like, okay, this is the problem we're trying to solve. We're trying to help artists. We're not necessarily trying to take over the world. And in the meantime, you've paid out, you know, coming up on $700 million to artists and rights holders. So that's amazing. Um, that's awesome to hear you're super excited, uh, you know, to work on this every day. How has your life changed, you know, since 2000, 2008 because of Bandcamp success or has it? Um, it, well, it hasn't. Um, I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm still doing pretty much the exact same thing, um, as in 2007, 2008. Um, I, uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously it's changed a lot in the last year, uh, Bandcamp in the last year has gotten, I think more publicity, more press than, um, than we did in the first 11 years combined. And, um, you know, that's, that's because of, uh, because of the pandemic, I think we were just really fortunate in that, um, you know, what we've been working on uh, all this time has been something that um, was even more useful uh, in a pandemic, right, where um, artists found themselves in this position where, you know, suddenly uh, a big part of their income was gone, couldn't, couldn't tour anymore, and, um, and needed to really turn to their fans and say, look, this is a way to directly support me. And, uh, and we were, we were there. So, you know, I, to me, this last year has felt like the biggest change with, in Bandcamp and, um, but it's all been, you know, all been for the better. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm, again, just feel really lucky that, um, we ended up being in a position to, uh, to help out artists at a time that really was pretty, pretty horrible for a lot of people. Absolutely. And for those that don't know, share what Bandcamp Fridays are and, and some of the um, charity components you guys built in in 2020. Oh, sure. So um, when the pandemic hit and we, re, you know, we realized artists were having this problem and, you know, this is this is our community, right? This is Bandcamp would not exist without uh, all of the artists and labels on the site, obviously. So um, we wanted to figure out like what it is that we could do. Uh, to help. And then we talked about it a bunch and decided on a, this pretty simple idea, which is that um, uh, we were just going to try waiving our revenue share completely and see what would happen. And um, and so uh, we announced that, sent a message to all of our artists that uh, we were going to do this. And 
the response from artists was and labels both was really um, amazing. What happened was the the artists, uh, a lot of them. Uh, said to their fans, hey, this is a way to directly support me. Um, a lot of them said, hey, um, Bandcamp's waiving their fee on this day. And on this day, um, I'm actually going to send all of the money that I make to uh, to this organization, this food bank. Um, and a lot of labels um, came forward and said, you know what, we're going to uh, waive our share of this on this day as well and pass it on um, directly to artists. So, you know, the biggest day that we had had up until then was um, a day that we uh, had done a, um, a fundraiser for the ACLU. And that was a a million dollars in one day. And um, on the first day that we did this fee waiver, it was $4 million in a single day. So, you know, it was really um, the, the site was definitely under a lot of stress that day. Our support team, our systems team, our developers were all um, scrambling to respond to the surge uh, that happened, and um, and then because it was such so, so successful, um, we did it again, and we did it again about a month later. Um, and that time, um, it was seven million dollars in a day. And wow. uh, then we decided, okay, we're just going to keep doing this until the end of the pandemic. And people on Twitter started calling it Bandcamp Friday, so we picked that up. Um, and, uh, and use that, you know, same terminology in our announcements. And, um, we've done 11 of these so far and they've made, um, in those 11 days, uh, they've made, um, uh, all close to now $50 million for artists just from those 11 days. And, you know, in the meantime, of course, every other day on Bandcamp, people are selling, uh, you know, fans are buying music, uh, directly from artists. So it's now about $21 million a month that fans are paying artists, but on those individual uh, Bandcamp Fridays, um, it's, you know, a big spike still. And, um, you know, it's just, it's exciting to see, you know, especially like seeing um, a label passing on all of their revenue mm-hmm. to artists, really quite amazing. Cause these aren't, you know, we're not talking about like Warner or Sony or, or you sure. know, Universal. These are like, a lot of these are just essentially small businesses. Right. And mm-hmm. so uh, I, I think that that sort of, um, you know, uh, it's it, that sort of behavior from our, uh, from people. It's just really heartening to see. And obviously, you know, the label, the, the small businesses, the labels, they need the money too. So it's important, you know, it's important, I think, um, to support artists and labels like every day on Bandcamp, if you love the music and, and the thing, you know, the, the stat that I like to remind people of is like, when you do on, when you, when you buy music on Bandcamp Friday, um, it's about 93% that ends up going to the artist or label because uh, that's after, um, you know, processing fees from the credit card companies. But if you buy music on another day, as I said before, the average ends up being 82%, right? So it's not a huge difference. Like, so every day, basically, it's a good day to, to directly support the, uh, the artists and um, labels who you love. And again, you know, when the fan opts in, um, the artists and rights holder get the data as well, which to me is just as powerful as, as these very impressive numbers. And um, yeah. again, I just want to, you know, reiterate, like, you know, not to get too into it unless you want to. I, I It's just so impressive that you guys have stayed private because, you know, you're, you're sharing these really impressive numbers and you can be successful and you can support artists and you can raise money for charity and you don't have to, you're not beholden to anyone else, you know, like you've, you, you're not beholden to, you know, um, just 
crazy growth numbers and like I said, trying to take over the world, you stayed true to your core mission and values instead of jumping around. And um, yeah, I think that's a huge reason why, uh, well, besides everything that you're saying, why you guys are so trusted and, and so beloved by artists. Um, so it's, I mean, if you want to add anything to that, you can, it wasn't really a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it feels good to hear that maybe that's the only thing I can say. Cool. Uh, well, we touched on this a little bit, but it's 2021, and once in a while, I still come across a label that will not allow us to distribute artists' music on Bandcamp. Do yeah. you care? And if so, what points do you make as to why labels' music should be on Bandcamp? Because again, for context for people, you know, when you started, the argument, the quote-unquote argument would be, you know, the labels are fighting for like iTunes chart placements and in my opinion, crap like that. And now it's, oh, but that might take away Spotify streams. So like I said, when, you know, if I'm running across these, if I'm coming across these labels, I'm sure you are. So do you care when you come up against that? And like I said, what points do you make as to why labels music should be on Bandcamp? Well, we want anybody uh, to be on Bandcamp. We want anybody to be able to be on Bandcamp who wants to be, right? I, there's nobody that I would say, oh, I don't want their music to be on Bandcamp. Sure. Unless, I mean, outside of obviously like terms of use violations and things totally. like that, right? But um, but we want to enable that. But the the issue really is that you know you have to to in order to put your music up on Bandcamp, right? You have to agree to our terms and and you have to own or control all of uh, the necessary rights. And there are definitely some people um, like if you have uh, signed an exclusive agreement with a performance rights organization who can't do that. So we want uh, to enable that. And we're working towards that. It's uh, it's a slow process. It's something that um, we've been working on actually for a long time. But you know, those organizations and Bandcamp are completely al completely aligned, right? We just we they we all want to get help artists and help artists get paid. So that's a the sort of I would say just a, a longer term goal that we've had, and um, and it's uh, it's coming. Yeah, awesome. And again, in my in my world, it's amazing how when I share that you've paid out 400 million or 500 million or now 700 million, I've gotten labels to care. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. keep up the great work. Thank you. Um, another audience question from Kala, who's an artist. Uh, do you see monetization for streaming happening on Bandcamp at any point? And obviously when a fan buys uh, music, you know, they can stream it or, you know, the, the artist slash rights holder has the choice on, um, you know, if, if they're making their streaming available. But um, yeah, are you able to share any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, I mean, the way I see it is streaming is monetized on Bandcamp. Streaming is how people listen to music on the site to discover whether or not they want to buy it. And we've looked at, uh, we've done an analysis and found that, you know, the, the sort of effect, if you look at the, the amount of streaming that happens on the site uh, in terms of the amount of money that it generates in sales, uh, the sort of effective revenue per stream that happens on the site is something like forty times uh, the the amount that you know is 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 uh, you know typically talked about for streaming services. Totally. Now, if, if what we did, in, if I if I thought, oh, you know, it would be uh, actually better for artists if what we did instead is like lock that all down into uh, a subscription service and try to compete with. Uh, with um, you know Apple Music, uh, Spotify, and so on, I would do that. But I think that would be it would it would end up being much worse for musicians based on you know the analysis that we've done. Interesting, very cool. Couple more questions. Um, where is Bandcamp going? 
Sure. Well, you know, I think this this idea of um, making it really, really easy for uh, fans to directly support artists and for uh, artists to offer fans uh, ways to support them is, as a general concept, supports, you know, so many different things, right? So some of that so far for Bandcamp has been, um, you know, buying digital music or buying physical goods. Um, we've just recently launched uh, Bandcamp Live, which allows you to um, stream uh, stream a show and uh, have an integrated merch table. And um, people sell tickets to that. We just had an artist do a show the other day that sold thirty thousand dollars in tickets. Right. So you know, we we want to we want um, to just enable the those uh, kinds of um, things, you know. And there's just there's so many of them. Um, yeah, another one is uh, our vinyl pressing service that we just recently launched uh, as well, or have started to roll out at a much bigger scale anyway. And um, and that, you know, it comes out of an observation that, you know, the people who sell physical goods through the site make much more money than um, the other than, than people who sell digital only. Um, and vinyl is, uh, you know, the number one um, it's the number one uh, physical good that's sold uh, through Bandcamp. So we wanted to enable a lot more artists uh, to offer that. And, um, and, but it's, but, but it's been really challenging, I think, for artists to do that because, you know, not only do you have to come up with thousands of dollars, um, but uh, so it's risky, but it also just requires a lot of expertise that uh, not everybody has. So we wanted to make something like that really, really easy. So we've launched this, uh, this pressing service where you can basically um, uh, go to your fans and uh, crowdfund the, 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 um, the necessary money to press the record. And then um, Bandcamp takes care of the uh, coordination of the pressing. And then we do all the fulfillment and all the customer service, all the things that would really, all those barriers that I think um, prevent uh, artists from offering something like that. So we want to do, I, I, you know, as a general um, idea, um, that's that's where we're going. Like make it as easy as possible for artists to offer fans things like that and um, and make it really, really easy for fans to um, support artists in that way. It's so great. I love that. Thanks again for listening to today's podcast episode. Before we wrap up and I ask possibly the most fundamental question of this entire podcast, I just wanted to remind you that today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. Built by musicians for musicians, Banzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a stunning website and EPK for your music. And just to add some editorial to that, I mean, obviously there's plenty of website platforms out there, but it's so nice to work with one that's specifically designed for musicians and what you're doing. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates. So if you don't know how to code or you don't know graphic design uh, like me, I'm saying I don't know graphic design at all. Um, it's nice to have those templates. Tools to sell your music and merch commission free. That's super huge that it's commission free. I don't know anyone else that does that commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features. That's also super nice because, again, I don't know any sort of crowdsource or subscription outlets um, that don't charge a commission. Mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters. And integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content 
from your other online profiles. And again, that's super nice. You know, you can sell your your Bandcamp, your music via Bandcamp directly, embed your YouTube videos. I know artists really love bands in town for live shows, so that's all super handy. And I would say like fundamentally, you know, I don't want to say like more important than those other things, but they have live support from their musician friendly team seven days a week. So again, if you if you have questions, it's really nice to talk to someone who understands what you're going through and not just like answering calls from, you know, people also building websites for their restaurants or whatever. Plans start at just $8.29 per month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners, that's you, can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE, S-U-S-T-A-I-N-A-B-L-E, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE. If you want to check the spelling, you, you can Google that word. So uh, thanks again for listening, and we're going to wrap up right now. Uh, finally, what does building a sustainable music career mean to you? Hmm. You mean, uh, well, I'm not an artist myself, but, uh, you know, building a uh, sustainable music career, I would say um, it, it means being able to continue creating music, doing what you want to do and going, uh, I think to do that, you know, you should be uh, using every avenue you have available. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think of Bandcamp as just, it's obviously just one of those avenues. I thought obviously it's the one that I would love to see as many people using as possible, but there, there are loads of others. I feel like people should, uh, be exploring everything that's out there and, um, taking advantage of all the tools. I mean, it's so different than when Bandcamp started, right? There actually are lots of other, um, lots of, I think, ways for people uh, to uh, get their music out there and be be directly supported by their fans. And so I think it's, you know, it's it's just about uh, looking for all those ways and um, listening to podcasts like yours. <laughs> Thank you. How about that? <laughs> but but your, you know, what you just said, like, you know, having a career forever, it's like, band, like you, that's what you guys do. That's what Bandcamp does. Like, you know, I've always felt that, or I've always built my career this way and I feel the industry should be this way. And I feel like Bandcamp is this way. Put the artists first, take care of fans a very close second and give artists access to fan data so we can build those relationships and, and grow it forever. So thank you for everything that you have done for so many artists and are continuing to do. Um, is there anything you want to add in general? No, I, I think yeah, that's... Uh... I feel like we, I feel like we've covered a lot of it, and um, yeah, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on, come on the show, and and talk about it a little bit. It's really fun. Absolutely, thank you so much, Ethan, for taking the time, and again, thank you for everything you guys have done and are doing for artists, for charity, sharing data with artists. It's, it's just amazing. I'm in awe. Thanks, Emily. Absolutely. So that's a wrap for this episode of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Tune in next week where we're going to continue talking about setting up your release, release and distribution plan and how you get your music um, on Spotify and all of that. But you start with Bandcamp and I'm not just saying that. That's why we're going in order here. So thank you again, Ethan. And everyone out there, have an awesome day, night, wherever you are. And we'll catch you next.